Welcome to the Impact Church Aurora podcast. We pray that this week's message encourages you, engages you, and equips you to make an impact in the world around you. Now, get ready to receive the Word of God. Would you put your hands together and welcome Pastor Will Ford today. Honored to have you here, Mayor. Yeah, but uh, Mama, it's so good to see you here in the house. 87 years old, started this whole thing off. Come on. But uh, I have one other dignitary I need to let y'all know about. This is my amazing wife, De Havilland Ford. Come on up. Come on up. Come on, come on, come on, come on. Come on, greet the people for me. Well, it's such an honor to be here. We drove through a snowstorm or whatever. Our flight was actually the last plane in, and I thought, God, you have something special this morning. So I really want us to take our expectation level. If it's at a 9, take it to a 12. Take it up because, you know, I love the story of Esther. I kind of consider myself to be like an Esther. You really are here for such a time as this. And so we're so honored and excited to be here. Um, as they're getting ready, let's just, I just want to bless this service and pray that the Lord would just come with his fullness, that we don't come just with an agenda, but we come with heaven's agenda and what God wants to do and what he's appointed in this house for this hour and for such a time as this. So God, we dedicate this service to you. God, we lay down everything we think we know about you. We ask that you would come and you would deposit a fresh word into our heart and God, you would take us to the next level. We say we're not satisfied where we are. We know there's so much more that you have in store for us. So Lord, we tune our ears to what heaven is saying today. And Lord, we ask that you would just, I literally see you coming and pulling on the strings of our hearts and taking us that we would fall so much in love with Jesus that this whole city would be impacted by what happens in this house. In Jesus name. Thank you. Y'all know I'm married up, right? <laughs> and you know I married the right one for me. God, I need a praying woman. <laughs> Love you, sweetie. You'll probably hear from her a little bit later. If you would, would, would turn with me in your Bibles to Joshua chapter 4. We're going to read a few scriptures. Joshua chapter 4. Starting at verse 4 says this, so Joshua called the 12 men who had appointed from the sons of Israel, one man from each tribe. And Joshua said to them, cross again to the ark of the Lord your God into the middle of the Jordan. And each of you take up a stone on his shoulder according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Israel. Let this be a sign among you. Turn to your neighbor and say a sign. So then when your children ask later saying, what do these stones mean to you? Then you should say to them, because the waters of the Jordan were cut off before the ark of the covenant of the Lord. When it crossed the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan were cut off. So these stones will become a memorial to the sons of Israel forever. Now, if God says something once is good enough for me, it's good enough for you, right? 
But if he says something twice, he's really trying to get his point across, right? He says the exact same thing, not in another book of the Bible, but right here in the next, in the same chapter, just a little ways down. Go to verse 20. And those 12 stones which he had taken from the Jordan, Joshua set up at Gilgal. And he said to the sons of Israel, when your children ask their fathers in time to come, saying, what are these stones? That you shall inform your children, saying, Israel crossed this Jordan on dry ground. For the Lord your God dried up the waters of the Jordan before you had crossed, just as the Lord your God had done to the Red Sea, which he dried up before us until we had crossed, that all the peoples of the earth may know that the hand of the Lord is mighty, so that you may fear the Lord your God forever. Isn't that powerful? Now, turn with me to Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews 11, talking about the great heroes of faith, right? Go down to verse 36. It says this, And others experienced mockings and scourgings, yes, also chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were tempted. They were put to death with the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, being afflicted, destitute, afflicted, ill-treated, men of whom the world was not worthy, wandering in deserts and mountains and caves and holes in the ground. But then it says this, And all these, having gained approval through their faith, did not receive what was promised. Because God had provided something better for us, so that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. Turn to your neighbor and say, you have unfinished business. Yeah. <laughs> all right, now turn with me last scripture, John 17. John 17, Jesus, I mean, it's the red letter stuff, right? (laughs) This is Jesus talking. Take it serious. It's the red letter stuff. He's praying. It's interesting. You know, when I used to get in trouble back in the day when I was growing up, (laughs) my mother, sometimes she started praying where I could hear. Right? And while she's praying, she's like, God, I've only known him for seven years. You can take him back if you want to right now. I'm like, God, please don't answer that prayer. Don't do anything. I'm sorry. Sometimes your mentors, your leaders, they have a way of letting you, letting you know what God is saying to you about them or whatever, the thing that's concerning them the most. I think that's what Jesus is doing right here. He's praying out loud what his disciples can hear him because this prayer gets recorded by one of them, John. And here's what he records. It says in the verse 17, uh, 17, Sanctify them in truth, thy word is truth. As the Father did send me into the world, I've also sent them into the world. And for their sakes, I sanctify myself that they themselves also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask in behalf of these alone, talking about the twelve, but for also those who believe in me through their word. Now he's talking about you and I. That they may all be one. Even thou, 
as thou, Father, art in me and I in thee, that they may also be in us, that the world may believe that thou didst send me. Isn't that powerful? And the glory which thou hast given me, I have given to them, that they may be one. He was pretty serious about this one thing, wasn't he? He was serious about one war before we were. <laughs> Just as we are one, I and them, and thou and me, that they may be perfected in what? Unity. That the world may know that thou didst send me and didst love them, even as thou didst love me. Let me pray. Let me add to my wife's prayer. God, we just... We're just thankful that you're going to answer your son's prayer. Because you have not forgotten about the prayers of all those who have gone before us. And you're working all things together for the good of those who love you, who are called according to your purpose. Even now, even today. Scott, we thank you that the one that we should fear the most is the one who loves us the most. And you love us so much that you'd rather die than spend eternity without us. That's what the cross was all about. So we ask you to, for, for the spirit of wisdom and revelation to be released in our midst. Holy Spirit, come do what you do best and do what you love to do. Make us love Jesus more before, more before we first came through these doors here today. God, release power, release glory, we ask. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen and amen. God bless you. <laughs> Like I said, it's an honor to be here. Um, come here by way of uh, Dallas, Texas, where I'm uh, on the faculty and staff of Christ for the Nations Institute. I'm a professor there. I teach on um, prayer, unity, revival. I've been traveling, doing that for years. I'm over the marketplace leadership major there. Because if you don't change the, change the marketplace, you don't change the world. So I've been doing that for six years. But what I've been doing for probably uh, close to 20 years is carrying this pot around the country. And... Uh, it's been in my family for about seven generations. And it was used by the slaves in my family. They used it for cooking. They used it for washing clothes. But they used it for something else. It's been this memorial stone in my family passed down from previous generations. Now, uh, you hear it uh, right there in Joshua chapter 4 where uh, they get to this spot where God decides to part the Jordan River the same way he parted the Red Sea. You know why he does that? There have been a whole generation that had, had not seen the Red Sea part. They heard the stories, but they hadn't seen the power of God move that way. They had clothes that didn't wear out for 40 years, right? They ate little cakey white stuff every day that came down from heaven called manna. So the supernatural was just normal for them. They didn't grow up in slavery. They were, basically, they were recipients of the sacrifice of everybody else who had gone on before them. So God brings them to the Jordan River, and he says, you know what? I'm going to part the Jordan River the same way I parted the Red Sea for this generation. And I'm going to kill two birds with one stone. I'm going to send a message to these folks over there in Jericho who think they're so bad and so tough. Got this big wall and everything. Send a message to them, but at the same time, I'm going to acquaint this generation with my power. There are only two people from that generation that had seen uh, the Red Sea part. It was Joshua and Caleb. So the Lord parts the Jordan River the same way he parted the Red Sea, and the Lord says, you know what? I should have had a V8. <laughs> so all the baby boomers got that joke, right? <laughs> you young people didn't get that, the old V8 joke, <laughs> that commercial. There's going to be a generation after them hadn't seen the Red Sea part or the Jordan River part. So here's what I want you to do. I want you to grab stones out of the middle of a Jordan. 
and they'll be a reminder for this generation of who I am and my power. And while this Jordan River is at flood stage, I parted it for them. So grabbed 12 stones. So they piled up 12 stones. Now, these are not little rocks. They were huge stones, so big, you read that they had to carry them on their shoulders. One for each tribe, 12 tribes. So they piled up 12 stones on one side of the Jordan River and in the middle of this Jordan River and on the other side of the Jordan River. And he says, let this be a sign among you so that when your children ask you later on saying, what do these stones mean to you? You should tell them the same God apart the Red Sea is the same God apart this Jordan River and they apart whatever circumstance for you. We didn't get these stones out because we were good swimmers. We had scuba gear. God hadn't invented it yet. God parted it the same way he parted the Red Sea and the apartment of a circumstance for you. That's what this kettle pot has been for my family. It's been a memorial stone to say the same God who parted slavery will part whatever circumstance for us. Right? And uh, the beautiful thing is that uh, it comes from this place in Louisiana called Lake Providence, Louisiana. Lake Providence. I don't think that's a mistake. You know, Providence... Biblical scholars say that providence is the continuous activity of God by which he preserves and governs. It's the way God looks over seemingly insignificant things and apparent accidents. So think about it. On the way to church today, you have no idea how many uncoincidental coincidences happened on the way to getting here. All right. How many things God prevented from happening for you to get here? That light that changed at the right time, that person who got in front of you in the traffic, we don't know what they stopped you or hindered you from. That person you were blowing at, you don't have no idea what God was using them to prevent from happening to you on the way to get here today. God watches over everything and nothing just happens. Nothing. Nothing just happens. So, um, the, way, the best way to understand providence and understand how God works, you have to understand that he's this God who loves to remember, right? And history, biblical historians say history is his story. God loves history, and he loves it because it's not so much he likes to remember things. He loves to remember people. He's a very personal God. He's a very personal person, and uh, he loves to remember, so that's what those memorial stones were. When God saw those 12 memorial stones, when he saw them, he didn't see a pile of rocks. You know what he saw? He saw the 12 great-great-grandsons of his covered friend Abraham who left everything to follow him, right? And so uh, he, he loves to remember. So think about it. If we made in God's image and God's likeness, right, we, we, we should be like these people who love to remember. And so you see traces of that throughout uh, just culture, right? So think about it. Like Instagram, Facebook. You know why those things are so important to us? Because all of our memories are held within them, right? When somebody's house burns down, what's the first thing that they go to get, right? They weep over what? Not the car, you know, not that table that they bought from Ikea or whatever. They weep over that scrapbook, right? Now, if I was to show you my scrapbook from the 70s, high school scrapbook, you probably, you know, look at some of those pictures, you probably laugh, right? Laugh at some of those, you know, big puffy hairdos or the curly, juicy Jerry Carroll juice ones, right? <laughs> laugh at some of those polyester suits, which are coming back, by the way. So don't throw them away just yet. But if I got that same scrapbook back, I might weep over the battles I fought with this person, that things overcame with that person, all right? 
listen, God is the same way he loves to remember. So he has them grab these 12 memorial stones. And so later on in history, when there was time for a reformation for the nation of Israel, the prophet Elijah, when he has his showdown with the prophets of Baal, a lot of people know the story, but when he, it says when he went to rebuild the altar to, to, to have his showdown with the prophets of Baal, it said he rebuilt the altar by gathering together 12 stones. In other words, he was invoking the memory of the covenant that God made with Abraham into that moment. He was saying, God, on these old stones, release a new fire for the next generation. I think God has taken us back to the God of a forefather. He's taken us back to the remembrances of what he's done before. Not so we can be stuck in the past, but so they can be like these starting blocks for the next generation to run and go after him harder. Because we have all this unfinished business. And so what you're going to hear in my story is really like all these uncoincidental coincidences where the God of providence has been working, not just in my life, but in the life of this whole nation. And this whole story has become a sign of what God is doing right now in our country. One, to heal the racial divide. Two, to prove that nobody is a mistake and nothing just happens. And three, that he really wants to bring revival and awakening to all of America. Yeah. And there's this, there's this New Testament understanding of that, how, how God works providentially in our lives. It's uh, in Ephesians 2 and 10 where it says that we are God's workmanship in Christ Jesus, and he, he's walking out the works that he prepared beforehand for us to walk in. That word workmanship is a powerful word. It's the word poema. Everybody say poema. So you hear the word poem in there, right? So think about it. You're God's poem. You're God's song. But even greater than that, the word poema was the word that was used to describe somebody who was a skillful tailor and a fabric maker. Right? So think about it. You know, you see a person who's working on, uh, uh, on a tapestry and they're weaving something together. On the one side of it, it looks like a knotted mess, right? But when they turn it around, you see the beautiful thing that they're working on. I think God is doing that right now. He's giving us a little glimpse and he's turning it around and saying, hey, don't give up yet. I know this looks like a mess right now. Don't be afraid of what's happening in Washington, D.C. Don't be afraid of what's happening down the street. I'm working on something. And then he'll turn it back around, and Mr. Poema is stitching lies, people together, connecting us in ways, in canon ways, like you can't even imagine. I mean, even like, like with this house. Like, so with Olga and, uh, and, and, and Pastor Jamin, they reached out to me back in October. Right, at a time when I was really sick, uh, come down with uh, the flu and strep throat a couple of times. And so the, the link on my website where it gives you like, the, the, the ability to ask me for a ministry request, when she sent in her request, it had the name of somebody else on it. And so I had this other person's name, and I, couldn't find, I didn't find out that she was the person that was one who, was, who was asking me. So I thought it was the same person. And so it wasn't until the end of December that I was just looking through these old requests, just thinking about what God did over the pre- previous year, and I see this request from, from Impact Church. <laughs> and so I called a meeting so we get connected, but then when I get here, we, we start talking, and I said, yeah, you know, I come from this family, and we just, for some reason, I started talking about my family background and how we were all born. I said, yeah, you know, uh, my brother, he's the oldest, and then like, uh, then the, about a year later, we had twins born in our family. And then it was 11 years, and there was no other child. And all of a sudden, my mom had this miracle baby, which was me. 
And then she had another miracle baby two years later, and it was my sister. He said, that's the exact same pattern in our family. We had one born, then we had another born, then we had twins born next, and then we waited 11 years, and then she had a miracle baby. And then two years later, another miracle baby was a girl. As a sign how God just, he's just, we, Mr. Poema is connecting all these dots and weaving all our little lives together. And nothing just happens. So, uh, give an example of what I'm talking about. I don't know how to get into this. And this just, I'll just tell you my story. So, um, like I said, I'm living in Dallas-Fort Worth area. This is like around 2000. And I just got this heart to pray for revival. Pray for revival in America. I mean, you know, we need to have a spiritual awakening in our nation. And we need to be praying for it. And... Uh, and so I started to do something radical to, to, to do, just align my heart with God's will for this. So I decided to go on my first ever extended fast. And the first day of my fast, somebody spray painted my neighbor's car in my neighborhood. I said, God, what do you want me to do? He said, start prayer walking your neighborhood. How many of y'all prayer walk? Are you prayer walking your neighborhood? If you don't, start doing it because, man, it is powerful. Like, because everywhere the soul of your foot treads, what? God is what? He's giving it to you. I got a chance to pray for people in my neighborhood and see people healed. I got a chance to share the gospel with people of a different faith and see them come to faith in Christ. But here's what happened. Bigger than that, God broke my heart for revival in America. And I got to the place where all I could do is just walk and weep and pray for revival. I would get up early in the morning and, uh, and go late at night because I was crying so hard. You know, you always had that one little neighbor in the neighborhood that was always watching everybody. Like the Gladys Kravitz of the neighborhood, right? Remember that show, Bewitched, the little nosy neighbor? Oh, there he goes again. I don't know his wife, what his wife is doing to him, but he's crying all the time every time I see him. <laughs> I was that guy. I was just crying out for a Bible, tears streaming down my face. And so there was this little prayer gathering happening in um, Colorado Springs, Colorado, that I eventually went to. But little did I know, Mr. Poema was connecting me to all my unfinished business from my family during that time period. He's connecting me to the unfinished business of the, of the folks who were using this pot. So I get to this prayer gathering. There's this man named Dutch Sheets. He gets called into a, uh, a prayer time with a young man named Billy Austin. And there's this little lady named Cindy Jacobs. I don't know if y'all have heard of her, but she was leading the, the prayer time, and she starts praying, and she starts like, declaring and prophesying over both of them. She says, you know what? Dutch, your real name is William. Of course, Billy, his real name is William. God is going to use y'all to go to Williamsburg, Virginia to do a prayer and revival meeting. She says, there's something to that. And she said, hold up. William means something. She said, does anybody know what William means? Now, I'm in the back. I don't know any of these folks at the time. There's about 500 folks there or whatever. I just kind of poked up my hand and said, it means noble spirit, resolute protector. She said, that's right. Who said that? And I was like, because I was just trying to stay hidden. And she said, you're William too, aren't you? I said, uh, yes, ma'am. She said, well, then get down here. And then she said, it's too wide up here anyway. Come on down. <laughs> Everybody starts to laugh. But when William does she's and William Billy Olsen and me, William Fourth III, when the three of us get connected together, the spirit of God falls on all three of us. Dutch starts weeping over me, and he says with tears in his eyes, man, we, if we do this, we, we have to bring you with us. And we had never met each other before, right? So I'm thinking, okay, this would be like church camp, you know. <laughs> we'll exchange phone numbers. We'll never hear from each other again. But little did I know, Mr. Poema, he's weaving something together. So 
And Dutch shared this powerful message, and I'll share just a little snippet of what he talked about that day with you. But he shared this powerful message, and I, uh, he talked talking about how the, the prayers of the previous generation are connected to us today. And I shared with him the story of this pot and how it was used. And, and he's like, man, this, this is amazing. I know we have to do this now. Let's stay in touch. And so uh, we decided to stay in touch, and it turned into this whole thing. We started to do this prayer gathering, this prayer meeting called the Kettle Tour. And so I'm like, God, do you really want me to do this? And Dutch said, you know, we want, we want to go not just to Williamsburg and to Jamestown and the place where the nation were born. We want to go to all of New England and the Northeast, and I'll give you the names of the cities we want to go to. So this is when it got weird, because here's what happened. When Dutch sent me all the names of the cities he wanted to go to, all of them except for two were names of streets in my neighborhood that I've been prayer walking. For example, went to Jamestown, the original settlement. Jamestown Court was right across the street from me. Went to Princeton University. Princeton Street was two streets behind me. Went to Hanover, New Hampshire. And Hanover Street was next to Princeton Street. Went to Dartmouth University. Dartmouth Court was four streets down. Went to uh, New Haven, Connecticut. New Haven Court was one street down on the left. I mean, and went to Gettysburg. Gettysburg Street was around the corner from me. I mean, literally, I could go on. Right? And if I didn't have the city represented, I had the region represented. For example, we went to the Chesapeake Bay Area. Right? And at that time in history, I used to call the whole area the Chesapeake. And at that time, I lived on Chesapeake Street. So why would God do this with a white man named Dutch and a black man named William III? Well, it turns out that the Dutch were the first ones to send slave ships into America in 1619. William III, that king from England, was the first king from England to send slave ships into America. God was saying, I'm using your relationship to show, and I'm turning the tapestry around to let you know I want to reverse the effects of yesterday's pain. It's Acts 17, 26 and 27, when God said, I made from one blood many nations determined the bounds of their habitation time beforehand, that they may seek after God and find him, though he be not far from every one of us. So God, it's not a mistake the family you're born in, the neighborhood that you're living in, the streets that you're walking amongst everybody else, God has preordained it. He's willed you into existence, and nothing just happens. And he's that involved and that active in all of our lives. And the thing that connected Dutch and I together was this teaching that he had on synergy, right? Synergy. So we know that synergy is when you connect two things together, and when they come together and they're working together, it doesn't create an addition of power, but a multiplicity of power. Scientists say if you take two horses and if you put them together, if they're pulling the same load, it creates so much exponential power from those two horses, it's as if a third invisible horse has been added. So God has set up something in the natural so that when we work together, it doesn't bring an addition of, an addition of results, but a multiplicity of results, right, just through our united effort. That's in the natural. Now, spiritually, are you prayer warriors? You know this. Spiritually, we know that one could put a thousand fight and two could put what? Ten thousand fight. That's synergy. So I'm thinking about it. We started getting all this agreement in prayer between red, yellow, black, and white. We started getting agreement in prayer between old and young, male and female. We can see the synergistic exponential release in the power of prayer like we never seen before. Right? Psalm 133 says what? How good and pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together and what? Unity is like the anointing oil flowing from Aaron's head onto his beard, onto his robe. And the Bible says, for there, everybody say there. The Lord commanded the blessing, life forevermore. Listen, God's looking for a place called there. It's a place where we come together, drop our agendas, and come together and believe. Listen, this looks like a whole lot of there here. (laughs) 
I love the unity through the diversity God has in this house. I love the family feeling. I'm like, I'm like Mary Richard. Man, I, I, I love what I feel in this house. I'm telling you, do not take what you have here for granted. Especially after 10 years, you've worked too hard to let anything divide you. Whatever's happening in culture, whatever, it doesn't matter. There's a kingdom culture that precedes everything and can change everything at the same time. Don't take what you have for granted. <laughs> and you know why Psalm 133 is so powerful? And I, well, I thought about that and looked at it. Psalm 133 is powerful because it really exposes the heart of God as a father. See, I, I have two sons. They have now two, two small sons, uh, Benjamin, Samuel, Benjamin 6, Samuel 4. And, uh, man, when they're arguing and fussing and fighting, what's the first thing I want to do? Parents are tallest. What's the first thing I do? I separate them. That's right. You go over there, you stay over there. Matter of fact, I think they, they think that's their names, you know. You go over here, you stay over there. Stay over here. Did I tell you to get over here? <laughs> they think that's their names. But, man, when they're playing in agreement, oh, man, they ask me to chase them around the house, I chase them around the house. It's just beautiful when they're in harmony, man, you know. You know, they, they want me to go sneak and get them ice cream when their mama's not looking. I, I do it. Drop them off with a sugar fix and run off to work, right? <laughs> they can almost command it from me. Father God is the same way. When he sees us operating in unity and agreement, it moves his heart so profoundly. We can almost command the blessing from him. Then Dutch said something that was so powerful and so profound. It changed my life. It marked my life forever. He said this. Not only can you agree in prayer with the person sitting next to you, you can also agree in prayer with the generation behind you. He talked about how he's at his alma mater, alma mater where he used to go to school and where he used to teach. And he's leading the student body in prayer. And while he's leading the prayer, the Holy Spirit said to him, I want you to come into agreement with the prayers of the founder of this school. And Dutch said, okay, God, is this really you? Because that man's dead. He's been dead for about 30 years, and I'm not into talking to the dead. And the Holy Spirit said to him, I, see, I didn't say come in agreement with him. I said come in agreement with his prayers because his prayers are still alive before my throne. And there are things I promise this man in prayer that I don't want to release into the school right now because I need this generation to come in agreement with that generation. I want to release the synergy of the ages. It's like Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God raised up in Abraham, raised up in Isaac, then in Jacob, breaks that Jacob thing off there, boy, names him Israel because he promised this man back here a nation. And when he did it for Israel, it's just, as, it's just as if he'd done it for Abraham. So finally, the scripture made sense to me. Hebrews eleven thirty nine 39 and 40. All these by faith, talking about the great Hebrews of faith, they were approved for their faith, but they did not receive what was promised. Why? So that apart from us, they wouldn't be made perfect without us. In other words, there's a whole company of people looking over the balcony of heaven saying, hey, Jamin, hey, Richard, hey, Will Ford, don't mess this thing up because God started something in us that he wants to complete exponentially through you. So that's when I understood that Psalm 133 was not just talking about us agreeing with what God started in our today. It's also about us agreeing with what God started in our yesterday. Why is that? Because... The thing we don't understand with Psalm 133, remember it says that oil from that high priest went from his head to his beard and onto his robe. We don't understand that because when we anoint somebody today, we just put a little oil in our finger and we thump them on the forehead and call it a day. That's not quite how they did it back then. 
Scholars say they took up to a half a gallon or a gallon of that heavy, thick anointing oil, and they poured it all over that high priest's high priest head. But the interesting thing is this. The garment from that high priest, it was passed down to the next high priest. It's the only thing that was passed down. So as he received his anointing for the day to be impactful in his day, the oil dripped down from his head into his beard, and then it mingled with the anointing from the past on that robe. And then that same robe was passed down to the next high priest. And then he received an anointing for his today to be relevant, to be impactful. But as it dripped down, that oil mingled with the anointing from the past, again, from the previous generation. In other words, there's supposed to be this momentum building anointing in the place of prayer that goes from generation to generation to generation, the saturation of the ages, as you will. Mom, you pray too long to stop people from praying, to, 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 keep, to have people stop praying right now. It's time for this next generation to kick in the gear in the place of prayer. You can't get this thing through Facebook, through social media, through smoke machines. There's some things you got to get in the place of prayer that you can't get through modern technology and anything else. It's time to take this whole thing in prayer to a whole other level. So that says that, and all of a sudden I remember this kettle pot that's been in my family. Like I said, it was used by the slaves in my family. They used it for cooking. They used it for washing clothes. But secretly, it was used for prayer. It was slaves in Lake Providence, Louisiana. And Louisiana was one of the worst places to be a slave. If you saw the movie 12 Years of Slaves, it was, it was about that whole year, that, the, the, the whole time period of slavery in Louisiana. It's a horrible time period. And so the story is passed down with this pot that was used by those slaves. They used it for cooking. They secretly used it for prayer because they had a slave master who would beat them for any reason, and praying was one of them. See, back then, they wanted slaves to be Christians. Here's the irony of the peculiar institution. It was peculiar, for sure. They wanted slaves to be Christians because they knew that Christian slaves made better workers. But they would pervert the gospel and say, slaves, be obedient to your masters if you want to go to heaven. Now, we know we're saved by grace through faith, not of works. It's a gift of God so that no one should boast, right? We know that today, but back then they didn't know that because it was against the law for slaves to read and write, and it was against the law for anybody to teach them how to read and write. So they wanted to be Christians because they knew Christian slaves made better workers, but they didn't want them to read and write, and they didn't want them to pray because they felt like if they prayed, it would foster hope. If they got hopeful, they would try to run away. So this man on this plantation would literally beat them if he heard them praying. Give an example of how cruel the slave master was. We had the story passed down in our family about one of our great, 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 great ancestors, Uncle Willie, who decided to go fishing but didn't ask the slave master or the, or the overseer. And so they decided to make an example out of him on the plantation. So they strapped him to a tree and put both arms and legs around either side of that tree. They then took a leather strap, which was shredded, which had rocks and nails and glass attached to it, something like the cat of nine tails, and they beat this slave forefather of ours until all the flesh was pulled out of his back. The family, in an effort to save his life, took a huge sheet and put grease or lard on it, and they wrapped it around his body like one big band-aid. They put the grease, of course, on the sheet so that it wouldn't stick, the, sheet wouldn't, the cotton from the sheet wouldn't stick to the exposed skin on his back. But in spite of their efforts, and uh, because of this man's cruelty, he bled to death and died. So that's how cruel slavery was there on this plantation where this pot came from. But listen, these folks were Christians, and they took the risk, and they decided to pray anyway. 
So what they would do is they'd sneak into a barn late at night to make sure their prayer meeting wasn't seen. And to make sure that it wasn't heard, they used this pot. So they would go in with this pot, and they would take it, and they would turn it upside down on the cabin floor. They would invert it, put it upside down on the cabin floor. They would then take about four rocks and stick it underneath the edges of the kettle so it would be propped up about an inch or two. They would then prostrate themselves on the ground and lay flat on the ground and put their lips in between the opening between the ground and the kettle so that the kettle muffled their voices as they prayed through the night. And the story they passed down with this pot is this, is that they didn't think they would see freedom in their time. <laughs> so they prayed for the freedom of their children and the next generation. One day, freedom comes. There's this young teenage girl. She decides, she decides to keep this pot and this story in our family. Now, why would she do that? She's probably thinking about all those who had risked their lives to pray for her, and now they're dead and gone. She's probably thinking about all those who are too old to enjoy the freedom she's about to embrace. So she keeps this pot and this story in our family. And she passed the pot and the story down to Harriet Lockett. Harriet Lockett passed it down to Noah Lockett. Noah Lockett passed it on to her son, William Ford Sr., who then passed it on to William Ford Jr., who then gave it to me, William Ford III. So I'm there at this conference, and I'm hearing this man talking about agreeing with the prayers of those who have gone before you. I began to think about the heart that God had given me for the next generation to be a spiritual father and a mentor. I'm thinking about the, the young men and young women that I've been a mentor to. But then, you know what hits me? I'm thinking, oh, my God, to whom much is given, much is required. And I remember this pot in my family. But then I began to think about the awesome privilege when he said, you can agree with the prayers of those who have gone before me. I thought, my God, I can agree with the prayers of my forefathers for the freedom of this next generation. And I thought about the exponential results that they can release and create from that. Dust said something that was so powerful during that time period. He said, you know, William, I was praying. I said, God, do you really want me to take some 200-year-old cast-iron pot around the country? To represent the prayers, bowls in heaven. Revelation 5 and 8 said there are bowls in heaven full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. The Bible says they're golden bowls. Not Tupperware bowls, not plastic bowls, not wooden bowls. Golden bowls. You know why? Because that's how precious your prayers are to God. Listen, there's a prayer bowl over your family. There's a prayer bowl over Aurora. There's a prayer bowl over Illinois. There's a prayer bowl over this nation. God's looking for a new generation to resource the prayer bowls in heaven. He said, God, you really want me to have some 200-year-old cooking pot represent the prayer bowls in heaven? And he said he grabbed his Bible, and his Bible falls open to Zechariah 14 and 20. And part B of that verse says, and the cooking pot's in the house of the Lord. So it'll be like the bowls before the altar. So here's this cooking pot that's caught muffled prayers, the same way as a bowl in heaven that catches up prayers like incense, and that says this to me. He said, wouldn't it be just like God in this justice and irony They use the prayers of a slave generation to free a nation up for revival again? I'm glad he said generation because, listen, it wasn't just black Christian slaves praying back then. They were white Christian abolitionists praying as well. Who knew if any person was a slave, was a Christian? They knew that person was their brother. They laid their lives down for each other. Many of those white abolitionists had their houses burned. They were shot. They were killed. And they were lynched right along with those black Christian slaves because they chose to suffer with the people of God rather than compromise and wink at slavery. One of them was a man named Elijah P. Lovejoy in his town of Alton, Illinois. 
slave was beat to death. And when no one else cared about it, Elijah P. Lovejoy changed from being just a regular preacher to being an abolitionist who took a strong stand for the ending of slavery. And the angry mobs would come to his house to tear up his printing press and to, and to threaten his life. He went before his city council, but he went before his mayor and the city council. He said, I need the government to protect me from these people who are trying to destroy me and destroy my property. And the mayor said to him, sir, if you would just stop preaching what you're preaching and printing what you're printing, that would be your protection. Elijah P. Lovejoy stood before me and begins to weep in front of him. He says, forgive, forgive my tears. I shed them not for myself, but for you and others. I cannot stop doing what I'm doing because if I did, I would fear that the angel of the Lord with his flaming sword would pursue me wherever I'm going. I don't fear man. I fear God. And if I fall, my grave should be made in Alton, Illinois. End of quote. Words proved to be prophetic. The next day, an angry mob came to his house, burned his house down. And as Elijah P. Lovejoy ran out to escape the flames, he was shot and killed. Listen, God has not forgotten about people like that. Their lives have become a memorial before him. They were friends of God. And we can use what God started in their lives to be the altar for a new revival today in a powerful, powerful way. So, so listen, it was the prayers of a godly remnant back then of those people that prayed into being the first and the second great awakening, right? And I learned something from those abolitionists. See, if my ancestors had been Muslims or Buddhists, I'd have no connection to this part of his history. But listen, but because they were Christians, not only these, my ancestors and forefathers, they're yours too. In other words... I'm just as much a spiritual son of Jonathan Edwards and William C- uh, Jonathan Edwards and Charles Finney as you are William Seymour and Martin Luther King, no matter what race you are. As long as we believers, we're connected by the blood of Jesus. And when we come together in that kind of unity, that kind of agreement, listen, something powerful happens. The oil begins to flow. Anointings begin to mingle. So this powerful remnant of people, black and white, Believers at that time period prayed into being the first and second great awakening. Had it not been for those revivals, slavery would have never ended in this nation. There was a Supreme Court law back then called Dred Scott, which said that slaves had no rights in the courtroom. But because of revival, that law got broken in the hearts of people. And the thing that everybody thought was set of law was changed because God brought reformation through transformation in the hearts and the lives of the people. That's why I'm willing to say the same God who broke the power of Dred Scott, he can break the power of Roe v. Wade. He can put an end to systemic poverty. He can stop our schools from being a pipeline to prison. He can shut down mass incarceration. He can shut down the crack house problem. He can shut down the meth lab problem. He's just looking for a new generation of people who will drop their agendas and come together and believe. Show me how he wanted to raise up a new civil rights movement this time that included everybody. And he did that to me through a dream that he gave me about the dream of Martin Luther King. So the ironic thing was that I was in Montgomery, Alabama, on my way to Dexter Avenue Baptist Church where the civil rights movement started to do a reconciliation service. And uh, the night before we go to this church where Dr. King used to preach and started the civil rights movement, Dexter Avenue Baptist Church, I had this dream. So in the dream, um, my friend and I, Luingo, were on our way to uh, on, on our way to Dexter Avenue Baptist Church. But in the dream, we couldn't find out how to get there. So in the dream, we had to first go pick up Martin Luther King. <laughs> right? Just a little side note: there's some things we need to pick up from the past so we can move into the future the right way. All right. But that's a little side note. That's another sermon for another day. Right. <laughs> 
But in the dream, we go by this house to pick up Dr. King. Of course, it's a dream, so he's alive, right? But in the dream, Dr. King comes out of this house, and there's this huge white duffel bag with black handles on it. And he knew he needed to get rid of this before he got into the vehicle with it. So he has this huge white duffel bag with black handles on it. He starts emptying all this dark garbage out of that duffel bag. Then he throws the bag down violently, and he comes to get into this vehicle with us. And in the dream, I said to myself, man, that bag would make a nice souvenir. Shows y'all carnal I am, right, even in dreams. I'm thinking, I went to Morehouse College. He went to Morehouse, Morehouse College. The bag would make a nice souvenir. <laughs> so in the dream, I get out of the vehicle to go pick up this baggage. But before I could touch it, Dr. King grabs me by my shoulders, and he says, no, do not go back and pick that up. And in the dream, he starts telling me what I need to do to heal the race issue in this nation. And I begin weeping in the dream. I wake up in the dream, and my pillow is soaked with tears. I've been weeping in intercession the whole night. I didn't even realize it. I shared the dream with my friend, Lou Engel. He begins to weep. We're like, God, what does this mean? What's the interpretation? I said, God, remind me. What did Dr. King say to me? And the Lord said to me, William, the white bag with the black handles, that would be the interpretation for your dream. Then I realized what God was talking about, what he was saying. See, the black handles represented how my generation of blacks had handled, my generation of African-Americans had handled our white baggage. God was saying to me, William, get rid of your white baggage. You've been carrying it for way too long. I know what God was talking about because I remember when I was 13 years old and I was at a convenience store with three of my friends. And as we left, a car car full of white guys who didn't know us, who were joyriding, said they were going to shoot and kill us. And they chased us for over an hour and a half uh, throughout this neighborhood that we, we had no idea where we were calling us the N-word and other ugly things. I remember what it was like at 19 years old to walk into a, a grocery store and have an undercover a police officer follow me the whole time, then falsely accuse me of shoplifting. And when he couldn't find anything old me, he said ugly things to me to provoke me into a fight. I know it's like in my 30s when I bought my first house in, in a nice neighborhood. I had the same cop for the first three months while I was there. Every week he pulled me over for just driving while black. I know what that feels like. I know what that's like. But you know what I've done? For everyone who lived in that area, those three experiences in my life, I put every police officer and every white person, I put them in the, in, in, basically, through the, I saw everybody through the lens of those experiences. And I prejudged everybody before I even got a chance to have a conversation with them. You know, there's this interesting thing. It's this scripture, Revelation 12, where it says, the devil is the accuser of the brethren. That word accuser is a powerful word. It's the Greek word kategoros. It's where we get the word category. So the diabolical plot of the devil is to get us to categorize and stereotype each other so that before we can ever have a conversation with anybody, we just attribute the one bad thing that we heard about one person in their group on everybody. God was saying to me, William, get rid of your unforgiveness. Get rid of your resentment. Get rid of any guilt manipulation. Get rid of your white baggage so we can all get in a new vehicle that can bring revival and justice for everybody. The question for all of us today is this though, what color is your baggage? Get rid of it because we need each other because only a united church can kill a divided nation. So I had this big book with me, the 
called Testament of Hope, had all these speeches and writers of Dr. King. And I go to the pulpit after we had our service. I go to the pulpit where he used to preach. And I open up the book. It falls open to the I Have a Dream speech. And I get to this part in the speech where he says, I have a dream that one day that the sons of former slaves and the sons of former slave owners would sit together at the table of brotherhood. And for the first time, I start praying for the family that owned my family where this pot came from. Not knowing that Mr. Poema had some unfinished business for me. So it comes to uh, January 17, 2005 is Martin Luther King Celebration Day. And uh, I was asked to be a speaker at the event because of this dream that I had. And we were there at the Lincoln Memorial praying. And um, God, as God would have it, there would be a white person who came to that event because of a dream that he had. And this is the event. This, this picture was taken by the, by the white guy. His name is Matt. And uh, <clears throat> Matt was working in corporate America. And his father had suddenly died on January 17, 2004. All right? And he was praying, trying to figure out where his family came from after his father died, you know, going through the, you know, how many of you have a family member pass away? The first thing you start thinking about, where did we come from? What's our family history? He goes to sleep and he has a dream. And in the dream, he's in a prayer, week, prayer meeting with a man named Lou Engle. He wakes up from the dream and he goes, who and what is a Lou Engle? He had never heard of him before. So he goes to this newly invented thing at the time called Google, types in the name Lou Engle, and up pops the face of the man he saw in his dream. And he's praying for revival in America. So he freaks out. So he decides to come to this prayer gathering. So this is the picture that he took. And if you follow that blue hand with the sleeve in the, the, on the end, you see that's, that's little old me. And that's me praying at that prayer meeting. So this is the day that we met. You can take it down for me. So that was the day we met. And uh, it's a powerful time. He and I, uh, he comes up to me after I speak that night because he heard me share about the story of the kettle and where it came from. And as I'm sharing about the history, how it came from different family lines, to, went to the, from the locket side of my family, I look out in the audience, I see this white guy, and his hands are buried in his beard, and he's sobbing and shaking. He comes up to me later on, he says, you know, I told my daughter, I told my family, God, if you really wanted me to be at this gathering, I need to hear my name called out. He said, you said Lockett, and that's my last name. I said, really, your name's like Matt Lockett? He said, yeah. I said, well, how do y'all spell your name with two T's or one at the end? Because I'm thinking, hey, maybe God's connecting me to that family, right? He said, we spelled it with two. I saw our family, we spelled it with one. I said, uh, where, where is your family from? Uh, he said, Kentucky. I saw my family, we came in through Louisiana. So we thought it was this, you know, nice little coincidence, right? And so, uh, but it was enough to connect us as friends. We had been, we, we stayed friends. We've been friends now for 15 years. Well, fast forward uh, four years ago. Matt decides to uh, go pray at Appomattox Courthouse. And when he's praying at Appomattox Courthouse, they, they go into the bookstore. Appomattox Courthouse, that's where the Civil War ended, right? Where, where generally signed an unconditional surrender. He actually lost his last battle three days before that. But then when he gets inside of the bookstore, he sees this book, The Battle for Lockett's Farm. Now he's seeing his name in a book, and he's thinking, okay, this, this, there must be something to this. And it turns out that the last battle of General Lee was at a house called Lockett, Lockett's Farmhouse. And he thought, that's interesting. That's my last name. Well, then he gets information from his brother. He said, his brother says, hey, man, I finally cracked the code in our family history. Turns out we were the last land barons in Virginia. 
and we're actually connected to the Civil War. Matt says, hey, I got a Civil War history for you. I heard about this place called uh, Locker's Farmhouse. He said, is that the place up by Sailor's Creek? He said, yeah, it is. Matt's brother said, hey, I just got the documentation on it. That's our family. So this wasn't like a guy named Smith reading about another guy named Smith. In other words, Matt found out that the Civil War ended in his family's front yard. All right, so here's the house here. There it is, Sailor's Creek. Here Lee fought his last battle, um, April 6, 1865. So we thought, man, this is a pretty cool coincidence because here I have this pot in my family coming from this, you know, Civil War era, coming from time where slavery was going on. People were praying for the ending of slavery. And you had this house where the Civil War ended in your family's front yard. So we thought, man, what a cool coincidence. Well, Matt stumbled on more research, and here's what we found out. Matt's family is the family that owned my family where this kettle pot came from. So think about it. Here's my family down in Lake Providence. Why Lake Providence? Maybe the lake of God's providence is way deeper and wider than we know. Maybe the family you're born into, the color of your skin, the neighborhood you grew up in, maybe none of it's a mistake. They're in Lake Providence praying for the ending of slavery, and then all the way up at the farmhouse of the people you used to own, slavery comes to an end in your front yard. In their front yard. But then because he's the God of the past and the future, Mr. Poema says, I'm going to connect two people from those same family lines together to war against injustice in their day and a crowd for awakening in that time because that's the kind of God he is. Because he always redeems history. And uh, you can go to the next slide for me. So uh, that's Matt and his family going to visit there for the first time. And then the next slide. This is them showing them, there's the bullet holes that were there. They're still there in this house. They still had the bullet holes from the Civil War there. And the interesting thing is this, is they, they said that uh, the house, uh, the, the Northern Army was in the front, the Southern Army was in the back. The house stood between both armies. And then after the Civil War was over, the house became a hospital for both sides. And former slaves worked as nurses with the white nurses to heal the wounds of the brothers who had been fighting against each other. Listen, it's a prophetic statement about God wants to raise up right now. He wants to raise up a house that will stand in the gap between the people who are trying to rip each other apart ideologically and everything else. He wants to raise up a house of healing that will stand in the gap. You may take some shots, but listen, it's worth it to stand in the gap with Jesus. All right, All right next slide. And this is where he shows the family history and uh, same family history. His brother showed him the next slide. And so this is where... Uh, that line there, that's my oldest known family member, Isaac Lockett. In that, in that document right there, it's from 1870. He's 90 years old, but he said he was originally from Virginia. The only Lockett's in Virginia at that time was Matt's family. So because his name was Lockett during slavery, more than likely, he's, he took on the last name of the people who owned him. So that's when we started connecting the dots and spent almost two years worth of research finding this stuff out. Next slide. So it turned out the town of Lake Providence asked us to come and speak for him. <laughs> And so we, while we were there, we found the place where Isaac Lockett used to be a slave. And that's the plot of land where Isaac Lockett used to be a slave. So think about it. On this plot of land here, there was a prayer meeting in the middle of the night where somebody snuck in with this kettle pot to pray for my freedom and to pray for your freedom. All right, next slide. And so the town, so we started sharing our story together. Next slide. Been sharing it ever since uh, the town Lake Providence. That's where they gave us the keys to the city. Listen, God is releasing keys to Providence to open doors. No man can close the closed doors. No man can open. 
Next slide. And that's uh, me uh, at the far right, next, standing next to Bernice King. We actually had a foot washing at the Lincoln Memorial with Bernice King, uh, Dr. King's daughter, and his niece, Alveda King. And uh, we did it on April the 9th. That's the day that Dr. King was actually buried. But April 9th is also the day that uh, the Civil War came to an end. But it's also, April the 9th is also the day that the Azusa Street Revival was released. And people of all different races came together and saw a revival that was still under the influence of the day. Listen, imagine now, think about it. This is the, the place where we met. This happened to two guys who were led to the Lincoln Memorial because of dreams, to the place what Dr. King said in his I have a dream speech, I have a dream that one day the sons of former slaves and the sons of former slave owners would sit together at the table of brotherhood. Maybe the dream speech wasn't poetry. Maybe it was prophecy. Maybe there's a dream king called the king of kings who's looking over all of our history, who's, there's a, there's a, who has a father in heaven who's still looking over his prayer in John 17 where he says, Father, I pray that they will be ones so that your glory can come so that the world would believe. Next slide for me real quick. So here's the other thing we found out in Matt's family. This man here is Napoleon Lockett. That's his wife, Mary Lockett. They were like the Southern Bell aristocrats in, um, uh, dur dur during slavery and during that time period. He was a Confederate journal or, uh, general and owned lots and lots of slaves. And his, he, between he and his 11 children, they owned like 1,000 slaves. Well, Mary Lockett, she didn't like the fact that the Confederate White House didn't have its own flag. So Matt's distant foremother, Mary Lockett, she decides to design the very first Confederate flag. And she hand-sewed the flag in her house and hand-delivered it to her friend, Jefferson Davis. In other words, Matt's family is the family that came up with the idea for the Confederate flag. Right? And so that first flag looked like this, and it was uh, the, star, the stars and bars, and they thought, okay, that looks like too much like the other one, the Union flag on the battlefield. So they came up with this flag right here, which is, everyone knows that one to be that. So this is the same family that came up with the flag of rebellion for the whole country. But listen, through the same family that came up with the idea for the flag of rebellion, because God heard the prayers of black Christian slaves and white Christian abolitionists all around the country. Listen, through the same family where the flag of rebellion was raised up. Next slide. The flag of surrender went up on their front yard. And a powerful. Next slide for me real quick. So, um. You remember I told you I'm walking my neighborhood. So Matt and I decided to go back to that place where that house is. And so we turn down this one street, and we get to Lockett Street, and that's where, <laughs> that's where the house is. Remember all the prayer walking I did in my neighborhood? God was ordering my steps all this time to go back to this one house. So next slide. We took the kettle back to the place where the prayers were answered. Next slide. And we went to, to that spot. Next slide. And we... This is after we cleaned ourselves up after our prayer meeting. Good night. We were a mess just praying and crying and hugging each other. Next slide. And that's us and our wives together. And next slide. This, this story is getting out all over the place. Next slide. And, and it turned into a book that got released on the 55th anniversary that I have a dream speech. But uh, so that's what God is doing right now. He is serious right now. And he's weaving something together, and he's doing something beautiful in this place. Stand to your feet. So 10, 
Listen, Impact Church, you are in this storyline. Because this is what God is doing right now. This is what's up on his heart. You want to have favor with God in this hour? You pursue unity through diversity with the brethren. Right? And God is not even listen. God, is, he looks beyond color. But guess what? He created our color. Yeah. And he's not after living bricks. He didn't make us living bricks. You know, the Bible said he made us living stones. You ever see a stonemason put a house together? A brick mason, he just slaps one down, put more oil, mortar down, next one, next one, next one, next one, just conformity, 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 conformity. Everything's conformed. But a stonemason putting together a house? No, he takes that stone, he puts it up, and he has to turn it a certain way, and he has to think about the next stone he has to put in place and turn it the right way. He's very meticulous about what he does, but if you see a stone made house it's beautiful all those different facets coming together that's what God is doing with all of you right now that's what he's doing with this thank you for listening to this week's message on the Impact Church Aurora podcast please feel free to subscribe rate and review for more information or to give please visit us at www.impactchurcharora.com now go out into the world and continue making an impact